to chapter 28. We welcome those visiting with us in person and online. We are going through the book of Job together, looking today at the center section, in fact, probably the theme of the book, Job 28. Hear now God's word. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit, the ore and gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. That path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle, and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me, and the sea says, it's not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where, then, does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. In my first semester at Wheaton College, 1997, I signed up for a class on philosophy. I did not know what I was getting into. Kids, if you take such a class, what is that even about? Adults, philosophy. Well, it's from two Greek words, meaning 
the love of wisdom. And historically, people studied philosophy to increase their understanding of what is good and true and beautiful in life. Now, as you read the Bible, you also see the very important search for wisdom. But it's different in a lot of ways from ancient Greek philosophy. And it's a lot different from the pursuit of just plain old knowledge. As one man says, have you ever met someone who knows a lot of information but doesn't use it well? (laughs) In some ways, that might describe all of us at times, right? They maybe recite facts to make you inferior to them. Maybe they relish the opportunity to prove you wrong. This can manifest itself in so many different ways. It it can really be seen to all of its ugliness in marital arguments. It can be seen in the pride that we have to kind of push ourselves onto someone. And the Bible warns about this. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Under the curse of sin, we often twist God-given abilities, including intelligence, for selfish ends. So the Bible, when it talks of wisdom, is talking about something very different than the accumulation of knowledge. What's it talking about? What in particular does this have to do with Job? You might think, this seems like an odd chapter. (laughs) What's going on here? In fact, this is the center chapter of the whole book. Because as Christopher Ashe says, we might think that Job is about arguments and philosophies and debates about suffering, but it's not. The book of Job is about the search of a believing sufferer for wisdom, understanding why the world is as it is. And here in this chapter, Job is reflective. He's measured because the question is, how do you persevere in trials? How do you endure when unanswered questions are plaguing your mind? How do you push on, kids, if you're disillusioned and feeling apathetic and agnostic? How do you answer questions when your life's ambitions are shattered and you feel hopeless? How do you press on, young people, when you're faced with choices in life, some of which honor God, some of which don't? The answer is, by the Holy Spirit and with wisdom. First, searching for wisdom. Do you remember where we've been? For Job, his life was never the same after that horrible day. His business was ruined. His kids died. He got sick. And earthly speaking, he has nothing left. He stinks. He rots. His suffering throughout this book is showing a suffering that's greater perhaps than anyone in history apart from the Lord Jesus. Things have happened to him that are essentially to us incomprehensible. In terms of human wisdom and what people value in life, life has no more meaning to him. As you look back at your own life, you might have a moment or two where you say, life was never the same after that moment. I met this girl. We got married. We had a child. We moved to a new place with a new job. I got the sobering news of cancer. I'm dealing with chronic pain. 
Life was never the same again, perhaps for some of you after those things. Job laments the day of his birth. Do you remember that? Why am I still alive? And from chapter 4 to 37, it's his friends and he going back and forth answering this question, why am I not dead? Last week, we looked at Job 11 to 14 and 19. And you might wonder, well, what happened to the verses in between? I'm glad you asked. Let's turn to Yogi Berra to find out why. Anybody remember Yogi Berra, the great philosopher, the catcher for the New York Yankees? He had some great quotes. Baseball is 90% mental. The other half is physical. You think, what? Wait a second. Always go to other people's funerals. Otherwise, they won't come to yours. And he once said of the repetitiveness of life, it's like deja vu all over again. That's Yogi Bear, and that's partly why we jump to Job 28, because the friends and Job keep going over things. It's God's word, it's valuable, but we're not going to continue to exhaust all of those things in those chapters. We are reminded that his friends say, Job, you're suffering because you're not repenting of your sin. God is holy. God must punish all sin. That's true. But then they said, Job, you therefore must have sinned, and if you're wicked, you will live a miserable life like you're living. Do you remember them saying that over and over again? And Job is saying, that's not true. And Job in chapter 28 is saying, the search for wisdom is still ongoing because my friends are not wise. That's not right. We have an intermission. We have a pause. The friends are basically out of steam. Job is reflecting on these things. He's saying, you friends, one of whom said, Humans are nothing but maggots, are not right. We're made in the image of God. There's something more going on here than your idea of suffering and sin. I need to find true wisdom. Now, what does that even mean? Before we jump into what the chapter is teaching, which is a poem, we need to ask what wisdom is. The Proverbs help us. Job is a part of the wisdom literature of the Bible. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. The Proverbs say wisdom is not having a high IQ. It's not insight. It's not a PhD. It's not education. It's not even knowledge. There are scholars that have all sorts of knowledge, people that have memorized the entire New Testament or even much of the Old Testament that don't have wisdom. Knowledge is the understanding of truth. Wisdom is the proper application of the truth. So here's one writer's definition. Wisdom is fearing the Lord, being teachable, and having skill in godly living. By God's common grace, many unbelievers have all sorts of skills. And we are thankful for them. Skills in surgery and skills in fixing your car. Unwise people can be gifted but they're trying to get home by using the wrong road. They're swimming against the world that God has made. Wisdom is the ability to make good decisions based on knowledge and then act them out by the power of the Holy Spirit. This means, in particular, wisdom is having skills in relationships. There's a lot of ways we could go with this, but here's one. 
Loved ones, sometimes we make decisions in our life that are short-sighted, that are self-centered. A lot of modern life seems to be about adding stuff, doesn't it? Adding possessions, efficiency, income, prestige, leisure. But at the heart of godly wisdom is an ability not to be distracted from the most important things in life, which are relationships. Our relationship with the triune God by faith in Jesus. Our relationship with our spouse, our kids, our church family, our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers. God has called you in all of these different areas, parent, friend, church member. Wisdom determines how you speak in these callings to each other, how you relate to each other, how you handle your money, how you spend your time, all these things. Some people are proud of what they've achieved and what they know and are complete failures in relationships, especially in the home. Learning relationship is the key to wisdom. Because in our home, our idolatry and our sin is exposed. We are seen for who we really are. And we are seen for how much grace we need in Jesus. The mask comes off. Our spouse and our kids know what we're about. They know we're weak. They know we are sinful. They know we need Christ. But there's a difference between this double-minded hypocrisy that pretends to have everything together and a humble, repentant, have mercy on me, O God, I'm a sinner. A huge difference there. What idolatry is guiding my behavior in my sin when I sin against my spouse, my kids, my friends? That's a brief definition of wisdom. Where, then, do you find it? Job 27 ends with talking about a place, Christopher Ashe says. Verse 21, The east wind lifts the wicked out of his place and mocks and hisses at him from its place. Now, in the context, another place, chapter 28, verse 1, what kind of place, kids? A mine, meaning a place where you go to look for gold, silver, valuable jewels. A mining expedition is on the mind of Job as a poet here. It's very interesting, isn't it? And as Ash says, here's the two motifs. A search of great difficulty and cost and the value of finding something of incredible worth. Those are the two pictures here. He says, this search is difficult and lonely, but it's a search, poetically, verses 7 and 8, that humans can pursue but animals can't. Think of a falcon with those keen eyes A falcon can see little animals, kids, running on the ground, but a falcon can't go underground to mine out a piece of gold. A lion can stalk its prey, but a lion can't start to dig and become an underground miner in Pennsylvania. He's telling us something as he leads to verse 9 to think about a miner working in the mountains. Don't you love the different genres of the Bible? So imagine... In my mind, this is what came came to mind. Imagine the Lord of the Rings. I know some of you like that. I love it. Imagine those dwarves 
The dwarves are for the dwarves. Remember them? The dwarves are for the dwarves. The dwarves are for the dwarves. What do they love to do? They love to go underground. They went into Moria. That's their ancient city under the misty mountains. And what were they searching for? Mithril, this mystical or, or mythical combination of metal that's beautiful and suitable for armor. They're going down there, but they're greedy to get more of it. They can't have enough of it. So what happens? They disturb the Balrog. And then later on in the Lord of the Rings, you have the orcs and the Balrog, and Moria is no longer the dwelling place of the dwarves. That's the visual image that I thought of. Because what are they searching for, verse 9? Something of great value. The image here is of a metaphor for the search of wisdom. The darkness in particular is explaining Job's isolation. His friends have not helped him. They've made things worse. He feels like he's deep underground in a mine, searching for wisdom, and he can't find it. And he understands God made him in his image, like he made you, to think and to ask questions. Kids, no matter how young or old you are, ask questions to mom and dad and to people in this church that are trustworthy. If you have doubts or concerns or you wonder, what does the Bible mean by this? Come to us. Parents, too, if you're making big decisions or you're struggling with something, talk to someone. We are not made to live alone. Whoever isolates himself destroys himself. There's another image in addition to mining that Peter Wallace brings out. Because in the ancient world, there weren't a lot of mines in Israel. So he's saying, remember, this is poetry. Another part of this is the idea of exploration. Think of people exploring for the hidden cities of gold, Atlantis or El Dorado, or even, as my son brought up to me today on the way to soccer, uh, soccer game, Magellan. In the days of the Reformation, 1519, Magellan sails from Spain. He wants to find a route to the rich spices of Indonesia. He takes with him ships and men, and he dies along the way. They're searching for something of great value. That's what the poet wants us to see. And he's bringing in images here that would actually remind us of the promised land. Even though Job takes place way before Moses, even though Job is not an Israelite, the book of Job is written by an Israelite who's pointing us ultimately to the land of promise. How does this apply today? This poem, as Christopher Ashe says, celebrates the wonders of human technology of what we sometimes call know-how. So you're reading this today, you're thinking, I don't really care much about mining, and I don't want to go look for Atlantis. I just want wisdom for living daily life. Here's what Ash says. If Job were writing today, he would talk about skills involved in modern surgery, manned spaceflight, sending people to space, which is happening. He might talk about skills like Beethoven and composing a symphony. Shakespeare and his poetry, Rembrandt and his paintings, and the greatest of all human discoveries and excellencies and technology and science. And then you'd be left with this question in verse 12. Can wisdom be discovered by the skill and ingenuity of humans? And the answer is a resounding no. 
Cleverness is not the same as wisdom. Having resources to better our daily lives is not the same as wisdom. And here's where this is so practically relevant to today. Because when human problems come up, what do people want to do? They want to look to science and technology to save us. If only we could live in a way that can perfect this technology, we would be able to live longer and happier lives. There's even someone today, the richest man in the world, who is coming up with a plan and his idea to stop the aging process and to reverse death. If only we had enough science, we'd do it. We might achieve utopia. But the question of Job is not know-how, but know-why. Why am I here? What's my identity? What's the purpose of all of this? The way to wisdom, he goes on in verse 13, is inaccessible. I can go into the mind shaft. I can have the greatest IQ, but I can't find it, verse 13, anywhere in the land of the living. You're not going to find wisdom in this world. I can go under the earth. I can go into the sea. It says in verse 14, wisdom is not there. I can find the best of gold and silver. I can make the best investments in whatever is going to make the most money. I can get all the riches of the world together, and if I have it all, I cannot buy wisdom. Verse 20, he's back on the ash heap again. I can't find wisdom anywhere in this world. How about, then, in the world of the dead? Derek Thomas says, even if we were to go to the guardians of the most desperate extremes of the world, Abaddon, the angel of the pit, and death, these personified powers, they would say, well, if you press me, I think I might have heard of wisdom once. The friend of my third cousin who talked to my other neighbor that I used to live next to when I lived in another state, said that one time he talked to someone else in a coffee shop, and I think it was somewhere out in Pennsylvania, and that person said he heard of where you can find it. That's the craziness of what is being said here. Where does this bring us back to? Creation. The Garden of Eden, where humans were looking for a source of wisdom, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, so that what? We might become like God. So that we can build a tower, a Babel tower. We can reach up to God. The hidden things of God will be revealed to us. But we can't. Only God knows the place of wisdom. In verse 25, he says, This is seen in God's creation. The weather itself. Do you remember earlier this week we've been complaining about droughts around here and what happens a few nights ago? We get tornadoes touching down and power outages. God is in control of those winds, kids. You can't feel, uh, you can't hold the wind. It's not like you can measure it, but you see the result of it. God controls it. The thunder rolls and the lightning strikes. I'm not going to sing Garth Brooks, but you see it, you hear it, you experience it, and yet you can't find wisdom in it. And here's the irony. 
There is wisdom revealed in creation. Do you see what's being said here? It's an ironic twist. Why can't we find it? Paul tells us in Romans 1, everyone knows God. The eternal power of God is seen, but at the same time, the unbeliever suppresses the truth of God in unrighteousness. God has revealed himself in creation, but you cannot find the message of salvation there, and we're all suppressing it in unrighteousness. So what does that mean? Is life meaningless? If we start from man, man will only attain skepticism and agnosticism. Where does this search lead? Secondly, where can wisdom be found? Job has nothing left, earthly speaking, but he has the one thing that is prized above all else. Verse 28, God says to man, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Things have happened to Job that are incomprehensible. In terms of human wisdom, they make no sense. But what happens as he focuses on God, the God who loves him, the God of covenant grace, the God who knows what Job doesn't know, that's how he can press on as he suffers. Job 28, as Dustin told us in Sunday school today, brings us back, kind of an inclusio, to Job 1. In Job 1, God says, I know this guy Job, he fears me, he turns away from evil. Now, Job 28, verse 28, says the same thing. This Job is really who God said he is, by God's grace alone. The fear of the Lord, that is the beginning of wisdom. But what does that mean? We don't want to just speak in kind of vague language. There's two meanings to this. There's an objective meaning and a subjective meaning, fear of the Lord, objectively. This is God's self-revelation in his law and in his gospel. God is omniscient. That means he's all-knowing, kids. He has infinite knowledge. There's nothing that he does that he does not know or plan or purpose or bring about. Nothing. Past, present, future. Every purpose of God is perfect. God's not in heaven playing a game of cosmic risk, kind of guessing what will happen or responding to what people might do or have done. He's not strategizing his forces. He knows the beginning from the end and everything in between because he is eternal. His wisdom is perfect because he is perfect. He works all things, Ephesians 1, after the counsel of his will. God has perfect knowledge. What do we have? We have the knowledge of God that's been revealed. We are creatures. He is the creator. So to fear God means to seek wisdom where? Where God reveals it. In his word. To fear God is to hear the good news of the gospel preached and then visibly given in the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. To fear God is to see that he has revealed himself personally. God has revealed himself to us in his Son. Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. Do you remember the Old Testament kids, Isaiah 11? As a part of the unfolding 
covenant of grace that was promised in Genesis 3, that a Savior would come to crush the head of the serpent. This acorn is growing. We learn more about the Messiah to come as we read through the Old Old Testament. And Isaiah 11 says, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of what? Wisdom and understanding. At age 12, some of you kids are around that age, Jesus is in the temple filled with wisdom, and he grew in wisdom. Incredible. Your perfect Savior grew in wisdom and obedience. Jesus is greater than Solomon in all his wisdom. Colossians says, in Christ are hidden treasures. Doesn't that bring to mind Job? Treasures, mining, searching. In Christ are hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. To see the perfect representation of wisdom, we see it in God in the flesh. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians. We read that today as the gospel assurance of forgiveness. Christ crucified. God has made foolish the wisdom of the world, and he's given to us a Savior who dies on a cursed cross. That flips everything upside down, doesn't it? For the Son of God to be born as a human, born of a virgin, born in a manger, without fanfare or pomp or circumstance or castles or gold or silver, to grow up virtually unrecognized. Do you know that, kids? From Jesus' birth until he begins his ministry, about 30 years later, there's the event of him as a boy in the temple. Otherwise, where is he? What's he doing? Well, he's living a perfect life. He's obeying his Father. He's earning your redemption even through all those stages of life. For him to heal and perform miracles. For him to hand over, lay down his life as sinful men, dishonest men, put him on a cross. That defies human wisdom. That goes against everything the world says about how to have a win and be successful. Everything. God's wisdom is seen in the Messiah hanging on a cross, which to the Jews was the most cursed thing imaginable. A criminal, that's who you hang on a cross. How could the Messiah, the all-conquering king, hang on a cross? This is God's foolish wisdom, loved ones. We can't reason ourselves to God. God is out of our reach. There's no wising up to get there. Wisdom is giving up on our own attempts at wisdom as God descends to us. That's grace. That's the message of salvation. Through Christ's objective work, we are reconciled to a holy God. God provides us in Christ with the righteousness he demands. His justice is satisfied. His love and mercy is poured out. The goal for which we are created to enjoy God and commune with God, the tree of life itself, who is Christ, that goal is open to us because Christ has opened a new and living way. He was broken. He bled. He died. He rose. He sent his Holy Spirit. We have that down payment now. He is our righteousness. Are you unrighteous and sinful? Yes, in and of ourselves we are. Christ is my righteousness. 
He is my sanctification. Do you see areas in your life that indwelling sin is, is there and you, you hate it, but you go back to it and you struggle with it and you say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner? Christ is your sanctification. He's helping you become more like himself by his spirit. When you struggle with sin, he doesn't turn away from you. His heart goes out to you. You, in your struggle with sin and suffering, say, I can't do it myself. I need Jesus. He's my sanctification. He's my redemption. Paid in full. Redemption is complete. Christ has accomplished it. For wisdom, you go there. You're stuck in a maze. You feel like, as David Strain says, you're down in the mine. You turn the news on. You think, this is awful. You're feeling afraid of the future. You're guilty over the past. You're paralyzed in the present. Where do I turn? It's not to politics. It's not to the news. It's to Christ, our righteousness, our wisdom, and our redemption. What does that mean subjectively? Objectively, the fear of the Lord is God's revelation. Subjectively, it's our response. So as you trust in Jesus, the fear of the Lord is not a slavish fear. It's faith in Christ, the covenant promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus, and I look to him by faith. I see the wise man, Jesus, dying in the place of a fool like me. I see that he loves me. I look away from myself. I worship him, and then by the Spirit, by grace, you and I begin to grow wise. This is covenantal wisdom. The fear of the Lord, as Ferguson says, kind of defies our understanding. You can't capture it in a bottle. It's another way of saying knowing the Lord, loving the Lord, worshiping and delighting in the Lord. As we grow in the fear of the Lord, we are more and more aware of God's holiness and at the same time, God's love. God has come near to us in Jesus and we know him as we fear him and we fear him as we know him, they go together. We respond to our Father and say, Father, I don't have the ability to fathom the mystery of your providence but in humility, I bow before you and I trust you. To fear the Lord is to hate the evil that God himself hates. So when I play around with sin, when we think, well, I'm going to sin and that'll make me happy, that'll get this burden off my shoulder, that'll give me the rest, I'm stressed out, I deserve it, I'm not fearing God. I'm not recognizing that God is with me, that Christ loves me, that the Father himself loves me. This is painful, loved ones. To learn the fear of the Lord is death to our narcissistic ego. It's death to our self-assured opinions. As we look up to Jesus in faith, we reach out to each other in love. This helps us as we suffer. That's the context of Job, isn't it? Here's one person. What does the fear of the Lord mean in the presence of suffering? 
when life is not going as you want. James says, if you lack wisdom, ask God. He gives generously to all. And the context of James 1.5 is suffering. Suffering by itself doesn't produce sanctification. Apart from God's grace and spirit, suffering can make us very bitter, angry, and self-absorbed. But by God's grace, we look out to each other in love, up to God in faith. And here's the question that Dale Van Dyke asks. In all of this, suffering and wisdom, what do you want from God in your life? Many self-professed Christians say, I want God to make my life work and give me the good life. God's the key for that. I get God, I turn the dial, and it works. So they think that to fear God means keep your nose clean, go to church, live a moral life, and God will bless you with a pain-free life. He'll bless you with success and wealth. It's a deal. I do this, God does that. Van Dyke says, the evidence that this is our view of God is this. How do we respond to loss and tragedy? The degree that our Christian life is about making a deal with God is the degree of bitterness we feel when God, in his sovereign providence, leads us through paths of suffering. Job says fearing God and turning away from evil is not a program for a good and prosperous life. Job teaches us if we trust by God, in God by faith, we will suffer. But the suffering by the Holy Spirit will deepen our knowledge and love of God. God takes Job to a new level of communion with himself as he suffers. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are what? Foolishness to him. So the natural man hears preaching, reads the word, and it's like you're in another world. Just bored, absolutely uninterested. Charlie Brown and his teacher, blah, 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 blah. Now we all struggle with distraction. We all struggle with getting bored. But the natural man just turns away from these things until the Spirit of Christ opens your eyes. Then you see the sovereignty of God, the brokenness of the world, the grace and the redemption we have in Jesus. Until Jesus opens your eyes, it's foolishness to us. So what does the fear of the Lord mean as we suffer? It means to trust in God's love in the midst of darkness. Things aren't going how you wanted. You think tomorrow's another manic Monday. You're depressed, you're discouraged, or in pride you think you got it all together. Trusting that God is loving you even when it doesn't feel that way. That's the fear of the Lord. God loves you even when things feel dark, Christian. As Todd Bordeaux says, suffering helps us long for the world to come. It teaches us to look to God for help. We don't have the resources we need. It teaches us to have compassion and to show mercy to others as we have been shown such compassion by God. And as you endure, and that's what you need, loved ones, spirit-given wisdom to endure 
you can help others as you share how God has helped you. That's how this matters in the context of the church. Because we're not isolated Christians. Church does not show up, kind of sit for a service, and then disappear. We're the family of God to love each other, to point each other to Jesus as life is dark, as we're suffering, as we're discouraged. So James says, ask of God. Don't just ask once, but ask again and again. Your father loves to hear you pray, God, give me wisdom. As you pray for wisdom, pray that God will help us not to fear people, but to love people, to serve people. As you grow, you'll grow in discernment. That's what wisdom looks like in real life. Not being naive, not being cynical, and not being gullible. God-given discernment, not fearful suspicion of people. As you grow in wisdom, you'll see how much you and I need to learn. Because the one who is wise is the one who is teachable. The Proverbs say, with pride comes disgrace. With humility comes wisdom. As you grow in humility, you'll want to listen to each other, not in intellectual pride, but in genuine, I want to learn from you and to listen to what you have to teach me about life and the word of God. And this is important because in the midst of the darkness, we need Christ and we need each other. A person tells the story of a woman visiting with her friends, a normal kind of tea time lunch. They hear a knock at the door. It's a soldier. He's there to tell her Her husband has died in war. She covers her face, runs to the bedroom, closes the door. Her friends come to comfort her. They stop as they hear her talking out loud. She's saying over and over again, Oh, my father. Oh, my father. Oh, my father. That is the fear of the Lord. In her darkest moment, her friends are there as she casts herself on the love of her heavenly Father for her. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you today. We don't have an answer that will make sense of everything in the midst of suffering, but we do have Jesus, who is wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and our redemption. And we have each other, to encourage each other to press on as we look to Jesus by faith, the one who loved us, the one who died for us, the one who lives and intercedes for us, Father, at your right hand. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.